Welcome to the Calvary Young Adults Podcast. We exist to make disciples who live and love like Jesus. Here's today's sermon. Hi, if we haven't met before, my name is Sarah. I get to be one of the pastors here at Calvary Young Adults, and it really is a privilege to get up here and spend time in the Word with you. Um, if you've been coming this summer, we have officially brought our relationship series to a close. Wah, wah. But if you've been here all, yeah, okay, yeah, 12 weeks, guys. That, that, was, that, was a bit, that, was, that was a bit long. But if you weren't here, there are some incredible resources online for you. Um, and we're actually excited to be diving into a new series in the next couple weeks. Before we get into that, I just kind of want to know, and this is rhetorical, but how many of you understand the truth that ignoring a reality doesn't make it go away. That when you ignore a reality, it doesn't mean that you don't have to eventually face it. And I think, oh, oh guys, hey. Um, this, this kind of became real to me as someone who grew up living in Southern California, where aside from whatever happened last weekend with the earthquake, we, uh, we don't really check our weather app. Yeah, it's a thing, the earthquake. I'll own it. But I grew up as someone who didn't really check my weather app because it's mostly sunny every single day, right? There's not like a heavy repercussion when you live here, again, unless there's a hurricane, where you go outside and you're like, oh, dang, really, really didn't get that one. But that all changed when I moved to a little place called Waco, Texas. Yes. Uh, Waco, Texas, if you're sick of bears, Callie and I went to the same school. There you go. But if you don't know where Waco, Texas is, it's literally described as the heart of Texas. And if you don't know what that acronym spells, it spells HOT. So if you're going to a county fair, it's the HOT county fair. If you're joining a soccer club, it's the HOT, because it, it really is so hot there, guys. But what I did as a Californian was I packed my Southern California wardrobe and I took it to Texas and I was like, it's hot here too. That is pretty comparable. And the first day of school rolls around and I'm thinking like, oh, I want to dress cute for my classes. I want to make a good first impression. So what do I do? I don't, who checks the weather app when you're from California? I just look outside and go, it's, sun, it's sunny. Um, so I decide to wear a, a long sleeve denim t-shirt and a pair of shorts because I was like, balance guys, like that's, that's weather out here. You wear shorts and a sweatshirt. Um, and I step outside and I realize it is, I've literally fact-checked this. It was 104 degrees with humidity. And for those of you who have never lived in the South, what happens when you put a backpack on, on top of a t-shirt, is when you take it off, you have these shadows of pit stains on you. And if you see them on me tonight, no, you don't, okay? Because it's, it's also hot up here. But I'm going to class and I get to school and I take off my bag in my first class and I go, oh no. And I realized I have four more hours of classes that day. So I spend the rest of the day hugging my backpack like a weirdo around campus, like I stole it or something, just to cover up. And I get back that day and I'm like telling this to my roommate. And she's like, first of all, I'm from here. Why didn't you ask me? And I was like, be quiet. I need some grace. Um, but that was pretty foolish of me, right? Like I going to a new climate should have checked what's going on before I prepared for my first day. When I was thinking about it, I'm like, what, what would be more foolish is if the next day I got up and was like, you know what, I'm just going to wait. Maybe something will change. Maybe the weather miraculously will be like a little bit colder. I'm going to put on my favorite sweater. And then I went around and started complaining to my classmates, like, isn't it so hot here? They would look at me like, what? Like, I'm foolish. 
But what I think can happen to us as Christians is we do the same thing when it comes to the spiritual climate around us. I think sometimes we get in this mindset, if we ignore the reality of what goes on around us, it's not going to affect us until we start showing symptoms, until we start becoming so anxious it's hard to show up to community, until shame starts to encapsulate our hearts and minds to the point where it becomes hard to actually open up about what's going on inside of us. Because the same thing that's true for the temperature is the same thing that's true for the spiritual climate. It's that ignoring those realities does not make them go away. And it might be an uncomfortable truth, but it's one that we have to lean into as children of God. Because the truth is, we live in a broken world. And you don't necessarily need to open the Bible in order to understand that. You look around and you can see that there are systems that do not work, that there's hurt that needs healing. There's something inside of us that goes, this isn't right. And when we open the scripture, what's so beautiful is we understand that we're not meant to live in this domain of darkness. We're actually called as children of God to help advance the kingdom of God. And what that is, is essentially to rule and reign as this domain on this earth that one day will come to completion where all things will be made right and good. And I kind of want to help break that down tonight because sometimes when we approach topics like this, spiritual warfare, it can be easy to do one of two things. We'd either ignore it because it feels hard, it feels heavy, it feels like overwhelming, or we could hyperfixate on it. And we can make it this thing that we become so narrowly obsessed with that we actually miss the greater work of God and our place within this kingdom. And I'm aware that as I talk about this tonight and Pastor Brian Howard talks about this next week, um, there's going to be a lot of questions that come up because I don't think we could possibly hit the subject of spiritual warfare in two weeks and walk away and go, I think we did it, guys. So if you have questions, if there's something that's stirring in your heart and mind, even now or as we, as we talk through some of these realities, I want to encourage you, we're going to go ahead and do a Q&R podcast again to try to at least respond to some of these things because we want this to be an ongoing conversation. We want to be people of God who face the reality of the climate in which we live without fear and without trembling because we know the truth of where we stand and who stands with us. Sound good? You guys are all like, oh my gosh, what's about to happen? Um, so for tonight, we're going to be looking at Ephesians 6, verses 10 through 12. So if you have your Bibles, you can get those out. And we're going to use this verse as a springboard into our conversation. And if you've been with us, we've been kind of touching on different parts of Ephesians. It's written by the Apostle Paul. And really his purpose in writing these letters, in this case, to the Church of Ephesus, is to encourage the body. At this time in history, Christianity is still very new. The church is on the move, it's on the rise, but it, the culture that the church is in is actually one of persecution and oppression. So he's writing to encourage the body, and mostly what he's been writing up to this point um, is about unity. It's about instructions for Christian households. It's about principles of honor and obedience. So kind of if you're like going through chapters five and then six, you're like, okay, cool, like pretty practical instructions. How do we serve one another? How do we love one another? And then Paul kind of crescendos up to this point, And this is actually the last section of his letters to the church in Ephesus. And he's talking about, okay, honor one another, serve one another. And then verse 10, this is kind of like his like final pep talk to the church. He goes, okay, finally, 
Be strong in the Lord and his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take a stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Paul doesn't say, finally, in conclusion, be strong in the Lord against the persecution of the Roman Empire. Finally, be strong in the Lord against those who persecute you, those who speak falsehoods against you. Or even be strong in the Lord against specifically your struggle with sin or the flesh. No, in this case, Paul, who's writing, mind you, literally from chains, being in prison for his faith, is encouraging his fellow believers that the greatest battle they will face is not against people. It's not even against those who imprisoned him. It's not against flesh and blood, but it's against the spiritual forces of evil. Because Paul recognizes that we are in a unique kind of battle. And more often than not, and I believe this to be true for myself and for the modern church, we have to be reminded that our opponent is not as obvious as we realize. And before we get into that, before we talk about like, what does it actually mean? Like the devil's schemes, these powers, these rulers, these authorities. I want to help us understand which, Paul, which aspect Paul is focusing on by addressing other areas that we might see spiritual warfare. Just to have clarity to say, let's see the greater picture so we can hone in on what Paul is trying to talk about here. So when we look at spiritual warfare in the life of the believer, it kind of gets broken down into three parts. The first is this. The first area that's usually talked about is the world. And another way to put that is it's an, an external temptation to sin. An external temptation to sin. What does that look like? 1 John 2, 15 through 17 says this, Do not love the world or anything in the world. If, anything lo- if anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from where the world The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. So this is kind of the first thing that comes up as an opponent in the life of a believer. But what does that mean? It means that when sin entered this world, it didn't just enter people, but entered systems that are broken all around us. And these systems that are set up are external to people, but draw out the sin of their hearts and their lives. And it's kind of sitting in these three categories. We've talked about this before, but I'll kind of summarize it. The lust of the flesh. These are external propositions that kind of pull or tug on our physiological urges. Meaning this often talks about lust of the flesh in the way of sexual sin. When we see something and it brings up this urge inside of us and it's, it's enticing us, there's less of the eyes. This has to do with battle, the battle of feeling that we have to obtain things. This often goes into the material possession realm. We have to obtain beautiful things to be significant, whether that's us physically, things in our home, owning the right car. And then lastly, when, he's talking, when they're talking about pride of life, this is just selfish ambition. These are the things, the systems of the world where they're like, be like this and you'll be successful. Obtain these things and you'll have life. And they actually come in direct opposition to the way of Christ. So there's this external temptation to sin. What else do we see in scripture? We see the flesh, this internal temptation to sin. Because the reality is by nature, 
we ourselves are born sinful. It's something we, we inherit from the fall. And only when we accept Christ, our flesh no longer has rule or domain over us. We're given this choice of how we live in our sin nature or not. Galatians 5, 16 through 17 says, but I say, and this is Paul again, walk by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. These are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. I think sometimes this can be hard to wrestle with and understand to say, what, like I'm in Christ and I still have a sin nature in me? Well, yes, if you didn't, the things of the world wouldn't tempt you. And if you're sitting there and you're going, man, well, that must mean I'm not a mature believer. Paul himself, who does call himself chief of sinners, but he's the one encouraging the church. He's the one going on mission for the Lord himself who had a radical conversion from one who used to hate and persecute Christians to one who would give anything for Christ. He talks about himself later in Romans that how he doesn't understand because constantly there's things inside him that keep him from doing the good he wants to do and redirect him to do the things he does not want to do. If you're, if you're there and you're like, I wrestle with this, it's because until we are in heaven with Christ, with new bodies, the body we're in now is still gonna be corrupt. It's still gonna be susceptible to sin. And while we can walk by the spirit because of the spirit of God inside of us day by day, the truth remains that our flesh will be a constant enemy to us until we are with Christ. So while the world and the flesh are two major areas that are in opposition to the life of believer, I kind of want to bring us back to what Paul is referring to in Ephesians 6, 12. And it's this, it's the devil, which falls into the category of a supernatural temptation to sin. And I appreciate Paul's emphasis because more often than not, again, as believers, I think we could either want to ignore the idea of Satan or the devil because it's too difficult or we want to hyperfixate on it. And again, both make a poor spiritual practice. It's kind of like this, like if you're like, hey, I want to be a healthier person, but I'm only going to focus on going to the gym and sleeping more. I, I, the whole idea of like diet or nutrition, like that totally freaks me out. I'm not going to do that you're probably going to feel like something's missing. There's going to be results in your life that are missing because you only have two thirds of the picture. And the same goes for if you're like, okay, I want to get healthier and all I'm going to do is hyper-focus on my diet. But I mean, I don't need to sleep at night and like gym memberships are expensive, so I'm not going to do that. We're missing the holistic picture. We can't spend the rest of our lives just focusing, okay, I'm going to resist the things of the world. I'm going to walk in the spirit so my flesh isn't tempted but I'm going to ignore this third component. And this is why Paul brings it up. He says earlier in Ephesians 2, verses 2 through 3, and you were dead in the trespasses and sin in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince and the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once live in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we're by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Who is the prince of the air? It's Satan. Whether we like it or not, we live in a reality where the enemy has been given some authority and earthly rule. And he appeals to our flesh and he appeals to the world until we're in eternity with God, but it's not without hope. 
You see, we know that he is the thief that comes to steal, kill, and destroy, while Jesus is the one who has come so that we may have life and have it to the full. So what does this mean? As we walk as believers, or maybe you're sitting there and you're going, I'm new to this. Carl Payne puts it this way in his book on spiritual warfare, which I highly recommend if you're like, man, this is a little overwhelming. I just want a more condensed resource. This is an amazing book, very well balanced. But he simplifies this at this. He says, a demonic spirit desires to destroy those Jesus loved enough to die for. They usually focus first on trying to keep people from knowing Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. If they fail in that assignment, their next job is to do everything possible to keep that born-again Christian self-absorbed and ineffective in ministering to others. If they can't keep a person out of heaven, then making certain a Christian doesn't help anyone else get there becomes plan B. And there's two parts of this I want to address. One, if you're not in Christ, you're not in a neutral zone. I think people live their lives and they're like, well, the moment I accept Jesus, like that opens this whole door to the spiritual realm and I just don't want that. And you know what? The enemy would do anything to convince you that, yeah, life without Jesus is better. Life without God is better. That following your own will and way is easier. That living by the world's standards and indulging in the desires of your flesh will satisfy you. But yeah, there's, like, there's no problem with that. Someone would sense, said the best lie the enemy has ever told is that he doesn't exist. And the next best lie is that he's not harmful. And I think it's a pretty good tactic because what it convinces you is that you are the master of your own life, that you have nothing to worry about. No one else is in control, it's all you. When really unknowingly we're handing over the keys of our lives to someone who does not feel neutral about us, who in fact would love to see you nothing more than your destruction, than my destruction. And that doesn't always mean our life going up in flames. Again, when we think about spiritual warfare, I think we have all these like popular images in the media that come to mind about who the enemy is and who demons are. But like his tactic with the believer, what I more often see is it simply means that he makes you so numb and so distracted that you don't ever tap into your true identity or go after your created purpose in this life until it's too late. And I think that's the real tragedy. So if that's you, my plea to you is to keep listening because I don't believe anyone should be scared into following Jesus. But I hope the reality is that I'm about to share speak to you that when we look at the hope that we have as a believer, that you would take heart and know that there is a way forward because here's the, here's the reality that Carl touches on too. If you are in Christ, the enemy cannot have your salvation. Praise God, right? Like praise God, you praise God. Once you're in Christ, that's it. Like you belong to him. You are sealed until the day of redemption. 1 John 5 to 18 tells us, we know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. We are free from the yoke of sin. It's a choice, but we don't have to be enslaved to it any longer. But he who is born of God protects him and the evil one cannot touch him. Praise God. Colossians 1, 13 through 14, for he has rescued us, Jesus, from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves. 
in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. If you are in Christ, this is good news. When we talk about spiritual warfare, it means you are no longer enslaved to a lifestyle, a perpetual sin or bondage that the world and your flesh and the enemy no longer have full control over you. In fact, this is a distinction that we can make when we talk about spiritual warfare between a believer and a non-believer. As a believer, you cannot be possessed by the devil. I know that we, we talk about oppression and affliction, but basically it means like you are no longer owned by anyone except Christ Jesus. But the truth is, and what I want to address tonight sometimes when we ignore this reality, um, is this, is you can be oppressed. You can become oppressed if you allow him, the enemy, if you choose to agree with his accusations or walk in his ways. He can't own you. Um, he can't steal your salvation, but he can steal, kill, and destroy your peace. He could steal your joy. He could work against your testimony until you don't even believe it. And I believe this is so important because I meet so many Christians, including myself in different seasons of life, where we could just walk in this crippling, again, anxiety, shame, or fear flooded by harmful thoughts that we can grow so accustomed to that we start to believe they're true. Let me just ask you, has this ever crossed your mind before? You're not good enough. Or how about this? It's been too many times, God's not gonna forgive you. No one's ever gonna love you after the mistake you just made. Or this one, it will always be this way how you feel, you always feel this way. Every time you try, you fail. Why would you try again? God doesn't care about you. You're an imposter. You don't need community. Why show up or just give up? It would be better if you weren't here. These sound familiar to my life. And I'm wondering if they sound familiar to you. Maybe there's the same thoughts you're having as a non-believer, but this is what the truth is. It's the same source. I walk with the Lord. I love him with my whole heart. And these things can still come and assault my mind and take my eyes off of who I made to be in Christ and actually my mission and purpose. Like I love what Carl Payne says because he just paints it so clearly. He's like, if you can't have your salvation, he's just gonna keep you so fixed on yourself that there's no chance of you looking up or outward. That whatever mission or purpose on your life is going to fall second to this just like focus on, am I good enough? Am I worthy enough? Am I okay? And he points this out. He says, demonic affliction is a habitual, debilitating, and paralyzing mental accusation. Though technically there are many ways the devil can scheme, these are the accusatory arrows that are most common in his arsenal. Why? because our thought life can go really easily undetected. See, because if the enemy can get into your head, he can make his way into your heart. And that's the wellspring of life, right? That's our wellspring. So what do we do? What do we do if this is the reality in which we live? Let's go back to Ephesians 6, 10 through 11. Paul says, finally, be strong, what? In the Lord and his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so you can take stand against the devil's schemes. Next week, Pastor Brian Howard's gonna unpack what the full armor of God looks like. 
But right now, I just want to focus on what the imperative in this is, what's being asked of those listening. Like, is Paul saying, like, flee from the devil, try to outrun his schemes. If you can avoid it altogether, do it. No. What is he asking us to do? He's calling us to be strong, not in our strength, but in the Lord's strength and his mighty power. And then from that arena, that place, we take our stand. And what you're gonna see next week, and I, what I love about this scripture in general to be true, is this isn't, he's not asking us to go on the offense. He's not like, all right, buckle up. Here's your arrows to fire back. He's saying, no, stand firm in who I am because I fight for you. And I'll teach you how to move on the defensive. But once we submit to the Lord, he's our champion. We don't have to argue. The Lord goes before us. James 4, 7 says, submit yourselves then to God, resist the devil and what? He will flee from you. He will flee from you. So often I think I try to spend time like putting in my tactic and strategy of how to avoid these thoughts, how to get around them, how to outrun them, how to numb myself so they don't capitalize my mind. But again, we hear this in scripture in 1 Peter 5, 69, humble yourselves therefore under God's mighty hands, the same language that he may lift you up in due time, cast your what anxiety on him because he cares for you. Be alert and what of sober mind, so much of it goes back to our mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing in what? Firm in the faith, because you know that the family believers throughout the world are undergoing the same kind of sufferings. They're highlighting the same thing that Paul is talking about. So much of our suffering does come from a supernatural source, not always of the world, but a supernatural source. He's talking about warfare. And what are we called to do? Humble ourselves before God, resist giving our minds over to the devil because he's the one who's called to flee. I was thinking about a time, um, <laughs> this is kind of embarrassing. I was thinking about a time when I was younger, I was probably like 12 years old and my sister, she's four years young, she was eight. Yep, she was eight years old, four, math. Um, she was eight and we like dropped her off at a little birthday party and it was superhero themed. So they all had their little capes on and I was going to go pick her up. She was like, literally it was like my best friend's house. And then there's this kid's birthday party and I go over and in the backyard, I'm like at a distance and I see he has taken her like little stuffed, I think it was like a stuffed crab and he threw it on the ground and stomped on it. And yeah, I know what <laughs> Eight-year-olds are mean. And I, being the protective big sister I was, marched over there, got in his face, and I said, you are never going to do that again. And he was like, oh my gosh, okay. And I was like, no, 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 no you're going to apologize to my sister. My sister's like, please stop. Um, <laughs> but guess what? He never picked on her again. Why? He wasn't intimidated by my sister. He's intimidated by me because I had the authority in that situation and when we think about our lives, like this is the same when we go into a spiritual warfare with the demonic, with the enemy, with these lies, like the enemy's not intimidated by you. He's not. And that's why standing on our authority doesn't work. He's intimidated by Christ in you, by Christ in you. James 2, 19 tells us, yeah, you believe God is one. You do well. He's like, congratulations. That's really nice that you believe that the Lord is God. Even the demons believe that and shudder. Luke 10, 17 they're talking, they're saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to your name. 
demons do not shudder at you, they shudder at Christ in you. He is the one who overcame death and grave so that even if Satan strikes at the heel of man, Jesus one day will crush his head. We're told that when he came into the world, there would be judgment for the world, but that the prince of the world, Satan himself, would be driven out. And Christ said, when I am lifted up from earth, I will draw all people to myself. Everyone will have an invitation into victory because of what I have done to overcome. Christ's death on the cross was just the beginning of him taking back what the enemy has stolen from our lives, that joy, that peace, that connection to God. When Christ rose again from the grave, it was the cry of victory over the war saying, it is finished. It's done. You no longer have to live under subjugation from a kingdom of darkness, from an enemy of this world. Jesus went on the offensive and won the victory. So now he stands with us in the defensive. So we no longer have to be a victim. So that you and I can have victory on this side of eternity and the next. That we don't just have our salvation, but we could actually move and advance the kingdom with him right here, right now. And what I kind of just want to finish on tonight, because again, like as I look out into this world time and time again, I see people who love the Lord, who want to serve him with all his heart, who are ignoring this reality and feeling so distracted from their calling, so distracted from their identity. Because the truth is what the enemy can't own, he'll try to influence. Like he's going to continue to try to influence your mind or heart away from him, away from the Lord, looking for chinks in our armor to try to weaken our resolve as we stand firm in Christ. Another way of putting this is we can still be susceptible to giving the devil a foothold. If you're around church, you're like, okay, a foothold, what is that? Um, This is a foothold. Uh, If you're like, what? (laughs) I could barely see that. Exactly, exactly. It's just enough to secure a spot in your mental real estate. It's just enough. It's the same, same with spiritual warfare. It could seem so covert, yet can end up being threatening to our own spiritual lives and witness as believers. When Ephesians 4.27 talks about this, this concept of foothold, um, Paul's talking about anger. And I think like we, we can hear that example and be like, well, how does that overtake us? How does it overcome us? But I'll put it to you this way. Maybe it starts with annoyance in your life, but it goes unchecked. And it grows and grows and grows until suddenly that annoyance you had with your mom, that annoyance you had with your sister becomes full-blown hatred. It becomes contempt because it's that little area of your heart that you open to say, I don't need to worry about that until the enemy is like, all right, I'm in. I'm gonna take what I can get because I can't own, but I can influence. Or maybe it's a thought you just can't shake. And you either ignore it because you're like, I don't know, that's just too messy. Or you shove it down until again, it becomes that foothold where you're like, I can't stop thinking about this. Maybe I'm not worthy. Maybe it's better if I do give up. But in our standing firm, we do have some tactics. So I'm gonna leave you with this. It's the five, it's just five R's. When we are facing lies of the enemy in our life, if you're someone where you're like, man, I do feel like there's just this affliction in my mind. It's not of the world. It's not of my flesh. It might just be the enemy. And the first R of this is this. It's recognize. It's the whole point of starting the series. Recognize that there is spiritual warfare going on and ask ourselves, is this coming from the enemy? Is this coming from myself? Is this coming from God? Is this coming from the world? 
In 1 John, we're told to test the spirits, that we live in the spiritual climate to test the spirits. So for you, here's just a quick, some questions to ask when you're, when you're receiving a thought and you're like, man, I don't know where this is coming from. How do I identify a spiritual attack or if it's conviction from the Holy Spirit? Ask these three questions. One, is this thought I'm having, does it align with scripture? Does it align with scripture? And I just want to point out in this case, like the enemy knows scripture. When we look at Jesus being tempted in the desert, he presents him with half-truths. There will always be a half-truth. And this is why it's so important for us to be in the word of God, right? But half-truths, when he's like, okay, Christ, you've been, you've been fasting for 40 days. Why don't you turn this stone into bread? It was a half-truth. He could do that. He was hungry, but Jesus comes back with the full truth of scripture. He says, but man is not to live by bread alone right? But the enemy will either try to twist scripture or it's going to be something that is so unaligned with the Bible that we could just throw it out. Secondly, another way we can test these thoughts that might be coming into our heads is, does it align with the character of God? Is this something a good father would say to their son or daughter? Is this something a gracious savior, even in his correction, would say to me that would help me along in my journey? This is why spending time with God is important to get to know his character, to get to know his voice. Is this gracious? Is this kind? Does this have any semblance of the fruit of the spirit? And lastly, again, is this demeaning or shaming? The enemy is called the great accuser. He's gonna try to accuse us, not convict us. He's gonna try to shame us, not call us to repentance. So be asking yourselves that question and recognize, and okay, if you're in that place and you're like, okay, I recognize that this is from, this has to be from the enemy. This has to be a demonic attack. Secondly, what do we do? We rebuke it with the authority of Jesus. We rebuke it. And that's a very churchy word, but I actually love what rebuke means. It means to respect, express sharp disapproval. To say, oh no, this does not seem right. This is not welcome in my thought life. This does not align with the character of God or with scripture. In Jesus' name, you can get out. This thought is not gonna stick in my brain today. And I'm gonna give a caveat on this because I think sometimes when we talk about spiritual warfare, we don't really address the side of maybe some physiological things or mental health. And I just wanna say there are real like psychological and mental and physiological conditions that come with brokenness on the side of eternity. And we see that Christ both heals the physical and he heals the spiritual. Sometimes from the outside, they can look the same. And I'm, I'm also here to say, you can treat these things pragmatically. If you're like, man, I just struggle with rumination in my thoughts. I struggle with anxiety, I struggle with depression. I'm, not, I'm, I'm asking that you would address it in a spiritual manner, but I'm also saying that there is no shame in going to counseling. There's no shame in talking to others. I went to therapy earlier today. It could be very helpful. Um, but what I am saying is if you identify those thoughts and rebuke them in the name of Jesus and they go away as quickly as they came, it's probably spiritual. Next, the third R, and this is important too, it's repent. See, again, we have a choice as to who we are, quote unquote, owned by and influenced by, whose life we're giving ourselves over to. Is it to Christ or is it to the world and the enemy? And if we are in Christ, we are, we are his, we are his completely, but we can still be influenced. 
So once you are submitted to Christ, our invitation then is just to turn from the things of, of, of the enemy. If you're over here and you're like, man, I've actually been indulging this thought that I am not enough. Not in a way where you're like, I'm not enough, so I need Jesus. But you're like, I suck. This is all I can think about. Or maybe it's, it's further than that. Our invitation is, again, it's to turn. It's to say, I'm not going to partner with that anymore. I'm actually going to turn back to Christ and say, okay, Lord, what do you have to say about me? What do you have to say about my life? I'm going to repent. I've had to repent for so many different thought processes that have kind of like snuck into my brain or repent for like indulging anxiety because it feels like I'm in control. If I just think about it, I could fix it, right? No, it doesn't make it better. So we have this invitation to repent and turn away from those things and say, I'm not going to partner with this. I don't want your influence. And then what do we do next? We replace that thought. We replace that lie with truth. And I think this can be such an overlooked aspect. We're like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to repent from that. I'm going to rebuke it. But what happens when we don't replace it is just going to come back. It's going to fill back in. If like we don't fill in that foothold, what, guess what? The enemy is not creative. He's going to go back to that same place and say, okay, rem but remember this. But you don't, it doesn't seem like you actually believe in alternatives. I'm just going to keep, I'm going to keep my hand or my foot right there. And Brian's going to elaborate more specifically on what areas we are called to protect but when we pull out that fiery arrow and we say, this is not truth, I'm not going to believe this, we actually have to cover that area so it heals in the truth of God, so that we become whole in the truth of God. For example, if your lie is, nobody cares about me, a thought that I've had, we have to rebuke that lie, turn from it, and replace it with the truth from Scripture. So for example, Luke 12, verses 6 through 7, Jesus reminds us, are not five sparrows sold for two copper coins? Are not one of them forgotten before God? But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear, you are far more valuable than the sparrows. This is the verse I go back to when I'm like, if I just feel worthless, I feel like no one cares about me. I'm like, God knows the number of hairs on my head. He's the creator of all things and he calls me far more valuable than even his most intricate parts of creation. We must fill the crack of the enemy's footholds with the truth that he can't touch. Because, right, he's a liar. He can't agree with the truth. And finally, we rejoice. And because this has to do with what we're about to do, man, you can make your way back up. Um, but we rejoice in the truth. We pause to be thankful for the victory and the reality that God has given us. Sometimes we just rush out of it. We're like, okay, here's a band-aid of scripture. And then we move on. No, we could saturate. We could sit in the truth. And how do we do this? We do this together each week by praising the Lord for who he is. We sing how praise is a weapon against our enemy, but why? Because we're rejoicing the truth of who God is. He's the one that rules above in the heavenly places. And one day he's going to usher in just complete victory, complete healing, where every tear was going to be wiped where every lie is going to be put to rest, where every demonic assault and ruler and evil authority in this world is going to be cast straight into the pit of fire where they belong. Praise recognizes the victory that is our reality. Praise recognizes and says, this is the reality I choose to live and I choose to sing over my life because there is a war and there is a prince of this world, but he is facing a losing battle against the king of heaven and earth who gives victories for those who are found in Jesus. And tonight we're gonna to rejoice in that truth. We're gonna to rejoice 
and the fact that God calls us to higher thinking. He says, you don't have to be caught by the things of this world, that greater is the one in you than, than the one that is in the world. So as we sing the song, whatever is pure or only you, that calls us to think on things that are lovely and good and true, I would encourage you, ask the Lord to highlight any areas of your life tonight, especially in your mind, where you've become comfortable with the lies or false narratives that oppose the heart of God for your life. And begin the process that begins in recognition and ends in rejoicing. Because in Christ, you do not need to be a victim of this war, but you're given the strength to become a victor. If you need prayer, our team is gonna be behind, gonna be behind the sound booth tonight. But if you would pray with me. Father God, we just thank you so much that you give us a strong defense, Lord, on this side of eternity. God, that there is truth that we may be at war, God. But Jesus, you have already won the battle. And there's so much hope in that. But God, I just pray specifically tonight, as your children go and address maybe those places of their heart and mind where they have let the enemy's arrows get in, where it's just been hurting them. It's been keeping them, God, for keeping their eyes fixed on you or walking the reality of who they're made to be. Lord, would you just help gently pull those out, replace them with your truth and strengthen them, God. Heal their hearts, God, so they would have more victory in you. So Lord, we love you and we trust you. We thank you for who you are. We pray this in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message. I hope it was a blessing to you and want to invite you to join us on Thursday nights for service at 7 p.m. To connect with us, follow us on Instagram at calvya underscore or on our website, calvarywestlake.org.